Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. Dr. Horvitz, who is the distinguished professor and former department chair, Department of Bioengineering, University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Horvitz is the hardest deep professor in the Department of Surgery and holds academic appointments in Chemical Engineering, Clinical and Translational Science Institute and University Honors College. Dr. Horvitz, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you so much, Professor. Nice to be here. A lot is happening in the area of cardiac care and treatments. Let's start with mechanical circuitry support. What is happening in the state of the art in this area? You know, when you ask me a question like this, I always harken back to where we all started here at the University of Pittsburgh in 1984 and 1985, when this all was launched by the cardiac transplant program and by Dr. Griffith and Dr. Hardesty and Dr. Bonson and Dr. Cormos. Really, when Dr. Griffiths and Dr. Hardesty, with Dr. Bonson's permission, started the, again, the heart transplant program in 1980, 1981, it was remarkable that within three years, the University of Pittsburgh was doing, I think, as many transplants or even more heart transplants in Stanford, even. So Dr. Griffith had the idea that maybe there needs to be additional therapies given even those many years ago, the shortage of donor organs. And this is now only a few years after the first use of the total artificial heart and Dr. Barney Clark at the University of Utah. Dr. Griffith's concept was, well, we don't want to use the total heart for a permanent replacement. Let's use the artificial heart as a bridge to cardiac transplantation. And so that launched in 1984, we had approval to actually start such a program. Dr. Griffith and his team we traveled to the University of Utah to learn about this. In the last weekend out of October 1985, Dr. Griffith performed the first implant of a, a total artificial heart as a bridge of cardiac transplantation here in the city of Pittsburgh. Fast forward to today, and there's more than 1,500 patients have been supported at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center by mechanical circulatory support devices. And that number includes dozens of children as well. So our program has been truly a, a leader. The leadership provided by Dr. Griffith and for so many years by Dr. Cormos for so many years to move this program forward to where we are today. And it was Dr. Griffith's vision after we were doing these implants for about 10 or 12 years, something like that, was Dr. Griffith's vision not only to use the current technologies that were available, but Dr. Griffith wanted a technology that he called the pit heart. He wanted his team to invent a new type of mechanical blood pump that could all give credit to the University of Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And that really led to the launching of Dr. Antaki's program, not really much after the first formation in 1992 of the McGowan Center for Artificial Organ Development. And about the same time, our team was awarded with a small company called Nimbus on the West Coast. 
an NIH contract called Innovative Ventricular Assist Systems. And that contract ultimately led to the development of the HeartMate II, with the first implant of the HeartMate II being performed at Sheba Medical Center in Israel, and Dr. Cormus and Dr. Griffith, of course, there for that first implant. And if you fast forward these years to today, probably close to 27 to 30,000 patients have been implanted by the HeartMate II. And we can take a lot of pride in that we were co-developers of that technology. In the meantime, Dr. Antaki also was moving full speed ahead and in introducing the concept of magnetic levitation as a way to support these new generation rotary blood pumps. And Dr. Antaki truly was a pioneer. He's still a pioneer in developing these kind of technologies. He developed the first magnetically levitated pump that was implanted in adult patients in Europe. And since 2004, Dr. Antaki, myself, and others have been working on miniaturizing that magnetic levitation technology and making it available for infants and small children. So the University of Pittsburgh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, McGowan Center for Artificial Organ Development, and currently the McGowan Institute, have played really prominent roles in the development of these technologies, the clinical utilization of these technologies, and continue to be very prominent in the work that we do and the collaboration with so many partners literally around the world. So that's a pretty lengthy introduction. So the current status of mechanical circulatory support is pretty much like everything else. It's in a bit of a state of flux, I would say. Of course, all aspects of healthcare have been impacted by the pandemic. And even during the pandemic, cardiac disease did not disappear the enormous number of patients in heart failure on an annual basis in the United States alone remains staggering. And so treatments and next generation therapies are as desperately needed today as they were before the pandemic. What you're also seeing is that the number of companies that are involved in these types of developments have really pretty much been reduced to two. One is Abbott with its HeartMate 3, and the other is a Biomed with its Impella family of pumps. And these are the two major industrial players. Of course, there are many, many academics like Dr. Antaki and myself and many, many others who continue to look for next generations of technologies. And most of the funding that we have had over the years have been from the federal government, either through the NIH or the Department of Defense. And I think that's probably a true statement for most of the organizations who are not directly linked to Abbott or a Biomed. We continue to work to develop next generation technologies. There's need to address the limitations of current technologies and hope these limitations will be addressed successfully by so many of us working in the field. So one example, what can next generation pump technology involve? If you talk about success of a transplant program, there's no better example that than our University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which since 1980, since Dr. Stars arrived, has literally led the world in clinical transplantation. And of course, with Dr. Griffiths and Dr. Hardesty and many, many others over the years, cardiac transplantation has been superbly performed and highly successful at our institution. But there are drawbacks, of course, 
associated with cardiac transplantation. And we all know that there is a shortage of donor organs compared to the need for these organs. We also are aware that patients who receive cardiac transplants for the vast majority are required to take immunosuppressive pharmacy for the remainder of their lives. And these are very serious medications and they have pretty significant side effects over the years. So given some of these limitations, the field now has reached a stage where people are looking for ways not to survive a patient to a transplant, but to the extent possible, recover the native heart altogether. Can you use these blood pumps in such a way that their use can actually promote the recovery, rehabilitation of the sick heart to the extent that at some point, the patient no longer needs a heart transplant and can live a quality life uh, with their native heart. And that's certainly one of the goals that you see at the meetings and the literature, et cetera. And of course, that makes extreme sense for the infants and small children. So if you look at the data for the infants and small children who receive a heart transplant, the current data that I'm aware of says the 50% survival for an infant who receives a heart transplant is 20 years which is a blessing, right? It's an absolute blessing of 20 years of survival, 50%. But that also implies that another heart is going to be needed. A second transplant will be required most likely, maybe even a third transplant. So for these infants and small children, especially using the blood pump, not only to support the life, but actually to rehabilitate the native heart such that it can take over the support of blood pumping without the need for the blood pump itself, or even without the need for heart transplant. That I think is what the field is looking into. And I think that's going to make these pumps, not only simply pumps, you turn them on and they pump, but they're gonna be intelligent pumps because they're gonna be able to be operated in such a way per clinical decisions and just basic understanding of cardiac physiology and pathophysiology that can enable recovery the native heart to the extent possible. Thank you for that interesting summary. I was reflecting on some of the information you shared with me some time ago at the start of your clinical program. I remember a picture of a patient who was moving around with an artificial heart implant and with the support system for that artificial heart was on a dolly and was the size of a washing machine. It's amazing what happened in terms of improvements in that technology. You bring up an excellent point, Professor. It's true. I remember the early days of the use of this technology. You're absolutely correct. The support system was literally the size of a washing machine. And of course, during that same period, we were using computers that don't exist anymore that literally did not have a hard drive. So we had floppy disks that had the algorithms for monitoring the operation of these blood pumps. And we did our work literally with floppy disks and computers that had no hard drive, et cetera. Fast forward to today, and the goal is always miniaturization, as you stated so well. And you think about the fact that some of these patients, and I should just add these statistics that I'm aware of for the HeartMate 2 that we just discussed, well over 100 of those patients who have been implanted with the HeartMate 2 have had the device implanted for greater than 10 years. More than 2,500 of those patients who were implanted with a HeartMate 2 had that device implanted for more than five years. 
So clearly these patients are not staying in a hospital for 10 years, they're not staying in a hospital for five years. They're getting well and they're sent home and they're trying to live the best quality of life they can. So the peripherals are called the batteries, the controllers, the cabling, all that has to be as inobtrusive and easy to operate as possible. And so trying to develop ways to attach these peripherals to the patient in the most comfortable way. Should it be a backpack? Should it be a hip pack or whatever it should be? What should the geometry of these batteries, controllers, et cetera, be that will facilitate comfort? And keeping in mind that these patients will ride in automobiles and drive automobiles, they'll fly on airplanes. They'll want the same quality of life and do the same things that you and I will want to do. And the bottom line is, what can we do as engineers to make those peripherals, those pieces of equipment that are part of the implanted pump, how can we make those as functional and as least obtrusive as possible? And again, I mentioned Dr. Antaki, but Dr. Antaki has been working for a number of years on the design of these sorts of power circuits and battery circuit technologies that will work best with adults and also work very well with children. One thing that seems to be advanced is the move to rotary blood pumps from the original pulsatile version. Right. The original pumps that Dr. Griffith and Dr. Cormos implanted in the 1980s and early 1990s, they followed the principle of the operation of our native heart, which basically has one-way flow valves regulating blood into filling chambers, into pumping chambers, and connected then to the rest of the circulation. And that's basically what our native heart does. It fills and empties on every beat and the flow is regulated by one-way flow valves. And this was the concept behind the original designs of these blood pumps. They offered comparisons to native physiology and that was what's so attractive to the early pioneers in the field. One of the downsides of these technologies were that because you had these sacks, uh, pumping sacks to accumulate blood, the size of these original pumps were so large that they excluded more than 50% of the population. That is, they were basically too large to be implanted in women, and they were too large to be implanted in children. So it was the NIH in 1994 that said, we need a new algorithm, a new paradigm for blood pumping by devices. And it was these NIH contracts in 1994 called Innovative Ventricular Assist System, where the pioneers in this field thought about other ways to pump blood. And the Archimedes screw principle was the principle that was launched here in 1994, ultimately the success being the HeartMate II. What's interesting about this history, Professor, is that the people who thought about pumping blood not by the pulsatile pumps that were currently in use, but by the Archimedes screw principle, were aerospace engineers. It was a small company called Nimbus that was located in Sacramento, California. These engineers worked for an aerospace company called Aerojet General. And off hours, they just had an idea. They were working on a new way to pump blood. And without one-way flow valves and, and blood sacs, but rather by spinning a turbine. And this is where the whole concept of rotary blood pumps was born. And this now is, a, I think, 40 years 
since the Nimbus engineers introduced their discovery and from then on in, what you've seen over the years is almost no pulsatile pumps are even considered anymore. And the rotary blood pumps dominated the field now for quite a number of years. And the goal is to improve those rotary blood pumps that are currently being used to eliminate the serious adverse events associated with their use and to make the devices as safe and reliable as possible in the future. Let's turn to another area. The recent publicity on the implantation of genetically modified pig heart in a human has seen a lot of visibility. What is your opinion of that particular approach? It seems a lot of these stories have a local flavor to them because the surgeon at the University of Maryland who implanted that pig heart, that's Dr. Bartley Griffith again. So Dr. Griffith, who began his career working for the Department of Surgery, Dr. Bonson, in 1980, when he was hired, and he stayed at Pitt for many years and was the first director of the McGowan Center for Artificial Organ Development. Really, Dr. Griffith did so many things in Pittsburgh, the artificial heart implantation, launching of the Pitt Heart Program. Dr. Bartley Griffith started lung transplantation. He began his work on emulatory devices for patients who were in pulmonary failure. And he had a longstanding interest in innovative ways to address the failing heart and the failing lung. And of course, this whole concept of using non-human organs has certainly been investigated for decades at the University of Pittsburgh. This is certainly something that Dr. Starzl and his team have been looking at for many, many years. And it turns out that Dr. Griffith had a very interesting patient that he was facing. This was a patient who had a time in prison. So he had been in prison and, and he also was not tending to his own personal health in a very good fashion. And so when it became clear that he needed a heart transplant, Dr. Griffith contacted the largest heart transplant centers in the country and said, will you please include this particular person in your transplant program and get him on the waiting list, et cetera. And none of the major centers that Dr. Griffith spoke with was willing to take that patient on. So now this patient is still at the University of Maryland and his heart is failing. And so because he was not a transplant candidate, he was not a candidate for a mechanical blood pump. So Dr. Griffiths basically put this patient on ECMO to keep his organs functioning, to keep him alive, and then received the appropriate approvals from the Food and Drug Administration to go ahead and implant this porcine heart in this particular patient. And the last time I had chatted with Dr. Griffiths by email, I think a week or so ago, I think the patient was out 30 days. And if I remember Dr. Griffith's email correctly, the patient is doing great. So this technology that Dr. Griffith is employing here for this porcine heart, at least in this first patient, there has not been the hyperacute rejection episode that I think has always been a concern. And my understanding is they have protocols well in place already on the immunosuppression to be followed for this gentleman post that initial post-operative period. So I think Dr. Griffith will be reporting on his results, I think at the upcoming meeting of the Society for Thoracic Surgery, and I'm sure pretty much every other major 
cardiac professional meeting in the next year. So we should be getting more and more information about how this particular patient is doing over time. And also get more information from Dr. Griffith and his team about whether there are plans for future implants of this sort at the University of Maryland. Speaking of immunosuppression, I seem to recall that there was some progress being made by the Stargill Institute. They found by injecting bone marrow of the donor into the recipient before the organ implant that created a dual immune system in the recipient. And this transplant recipient needed a lot less immunosuppression drugs. Well, I know Dr. Starzl's research, some of his patients that over time ultimately did not need to receive any immunosuppression, right? Even though it's assumed, at least by me, that transplant recipients will have immunosuppressive pharmacy regimens throughout their entire life. Dr. Starzl published many papers, did much research on the concept of actually eliminating the need for this immunosuppression. Where that currently stands, Professor, I'm not sure, but I think what you're talking about is follows from the, the work that Dr. Stossel reported to us in his many years at the University of Pittsburgh. On this subject, do you have any additional comments? I would just like to say, Professor, that I don't see how all the work that we've been discussing could have ever been accomplished without a McGowan Institute. I mean, the intellectual powerhouse that is the McGowan Institute, the opportunity for state-of-the-art bench studies in a world-class facility, all part of the McGowan Institute, the availability of great surgical staff, medical staff, students of all stripes, and just the willingness of everyone, all the directors over the years, from Dr. Griffith to Dr. Russell and all Dr. Wagner, to embrace these mechanical blood pumps and heart assist type programs and lung assist type programs, and not only to embrace them, but to promote them, to make it possible for this kind of work to be done in such a world-class facility. There's no question that the McGowan Institute is a major reason that if any of these results are of interest to people, it's in no small part because of the wonderful McGowan Institute, the leadership that the McGowan Institute has provided to all of us over the years. Dr. Borovitz, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this important area. I wish you the best for your continued success in your studies. Thanks to the McGowan Institute for sponsoring this podcast series. I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome your questions and suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again, best wishes and good health. 